Welcome to Bandit's Keep. I'm Daniel. This week, we're going to talk a little bit about Unchained, my new system I'm creating that is inspired by Chainmail and also original Dungeons & Dragons. There's also Unchained Heroes, which is the one that I'm releasing as well. I'll talk about that at the end. That's the really stripped down one that basically is mostly inspired by Chainmail. But let's start with what's first. And I also have a couple of calls from Jason and also Chicago Wiz. We'll have all that and more on this episode. That felt like a little like 80s teaser, you know, pre-show, maybe 70s. I don't know. Remember those shows where they used to show you like chunks of what was going to happen in the episode before the episode started? I don't know who came up with that idea, but that's like spoilers, right? I don't know. Let me know if that's spoilers. So let's talk a little bit about magical research. This has become kind of a big topic for me because that is the main way the player characters have spent their vast wealth they've been accumulating, but also they've reached a point where they need spells, they want spells, and they don't have enough cash. So this is how OD&D operates. And I'm going to tell you, the I'm mostly running it this way. I'm going to talk about a little bit about what I do slightly different, and I would love some feedback. So let's just start. So this is on page 34 of Men and Magic, at least on the re-release prints that you can get on Draft the RPG. Both magic users and clerics may attempt to expand on the spells listed, as applicable by class. This is a matter of time and investment. The level of the magic required to operate the spell, determination by referee, dictates the initial investment. Investment for first level spell is 2,000 gold pieces, second level 4,000 gold pieces, third level 8,000 gold pieces, fourth level 16,000 gold pieces, fifth level 32,000 gold pieces, and sixth level 64,000 gold pieces. The time required is one week per spell level. For every amount equal to the basic investment spent, there is a 20% chance of success, cumulative. An investment of 10,000 gold pieces in order to develop a new first level spell, for example, has a 100% chance of success after one game week. The level of the spell researched must be consistent with the level of the magic user or cleric involved, i.e. the character must be able to use spells equal to or above the level of the one they desire to create. Once a new spell is created, the researcher may include it in the list appropriate to its level. He may inform others of it, thus enabling them to utilize it, or he may keep it to himself. Then we have books of spells. Characters who employ spells are assumed to acquire books containing the spells they can use. One book for each level. If a duplicate set of such books is desired, the cost will be the same as the initial investment for research as listed above, i.e. 2,000, 4,000, 8,000, etc., Lots of these books will require replacement at the above expenses. Okay, so there's a lot of moving pieces here. Number one, you will notice here, at least I noticed here, that it talks about clerics and spell books. And, you know, again, this is something I do in my campaign. I don't do the, oh, clerics know every spell, they can do what they want kind of thing. Because I think that makes clerics way too powerful And number one. And also, again, it takes away that choice where you have to kind of make a decision. Which spells do I want to put in my book? The other thing it doesn't really say is who gets what spells and how they have it. You could assume from this, as I believe Delving Deeper does, that magic users and clerics just have all the spells in their books that exist, basically, that they can cast. And if they want to create a brand new spell, like Floating Disc or Magic Missile, at that point they would need to do this spell research to get it. The way I interpret it is they start with a certain number of spells, which I have determined the way that I do it. I do 3d6 Spells for magic users, 2d6 for elven magic users, and clerics get 2d6, but they don't get it until second level, obviously. 
they must have every spell in a spell level before they can move to the next. So in other words, if you were to roll 18 as a magic user, you would get 18 spells in your book. And I believe that there are 10 first level spells and eight second or eight second and 10 first. Did it say the same thing twice? Basically, that, that would give you every spell first and second level if you rolled an 18. If you roll, I think, if there's eight first level spells and you roll less than eight, then you don't know them all. If you don't roll more than eight, then you have them all. Now, beyond that, you must research or find spells. So I'm going to deal with spell books in a second, but let's just talk about spells. The way that I've been handling it is I use this, obviously, with a couple of exceptions. Number one, if they are using a proper massive library, like in a, a, t a town, or they're being taught a spell, they do not require a percentile chance to succeed. They just spend the cost of time and money. The, you could assume the cost as maybe the magic user is teaching you, so that's why it costs money. You could assume the library is renting things to you. You could assume there's experiments being made. However you want to role play that. Basically, if you want to learn the sleep spell and you don't know it, you can go to a library, study for one week, pay them 2,000 gold pieces, and you will have the sleep spell in your book. Included in this, for the first spell of the level that you have, is a spell book. So I don't make you pay for that. So if when, so for instance, when you get your first second level spell, or your first third level spells it would be, for a lot of people, you will need to get a spell book, right, of 8,000 gold pieces. But if you just research a third level spell, it's included in there. So, and why is there a difference there, and why would that ever come up? Well, let's talk about other people's spell books. Wasn't that a song? You down with other people's spell? No, that's not right. Anyways, if you take somebody else's spell book and you are able to cast the spells within, that is to say, if you're a cleric and you take a chaotic uh, user's book, you won't be able to cast darkness because that's a chaotic spell. But if you take their spell book, let's say you're a magic user, and this has happened multiple times in my campaign, and you take another magic user's spell book, you can simply just copy those spells. You've got them in the spell book. You can just copy them over. It does still take the allotted number of weeks and it costs the price of a new spell book if you don't already have one. You can also just choose to cast from their book, but you might end up carrying a lot of books, which might be awkward if you have like two spells in your third level spell book and two spells in another one that you captured and a spell here. So that's the way I do it. I don't require any kind of special stuff. You could use Read Magic or something, I guess, to, uh, if you want to use that as a rule. I just kind of assume that when they sit down, they have the access to be able to do that. So that's basically how I do that. Now, scrolls are a little different. If you find a scroll of a spell, you, it doesn't even matter if you can cast it. If you copy the scroll into your spell book, you automatically succeed in putting it in there. You can do that in a day or two. Like I, Again, I kind of keep that loose. If you do that, it destroys the scroll. Now, there's obviously advantages and disadvantages. If you get a scroll of a fifth level spell, well, I mean, a fifth level spell is going to cost you 32,000 gold pieces, even if you're in a library, and five weeks to study. So you have to decide, is it worth taking the scroll and basically destroying it so I can have this higher level spell in my book immediately? Or should I hold on to the scroll and maybe use it as a one-off? You got a choice. You can do it either way. So that's basically what's been happening there. So in my world, we've got a couple of things going on. I've got two people that are playing magic users, and then a third character was reincarnated as an elf magic user. So of course they didn't have a spell book. 
So they have been learning their spells every morning from the other two characters' spellbook, and they actually captured a empty <laughs> first-level spellbook recently. So they're going to use that first-level spellbook to copy spells from the other spellbooks into their spellbook. Again, they just need time to do it, and time is a thing, right? We, When we look at these games, it's really interesting because I, even though I clearly am playing older games, when I got back into the hobby, I was playing 5e. And my idea of a campaign or the way that I run a campaign or just the campaigns I like to run are kind of fast paced. It's not like you go into a cave, you kill a goblin, you come back to town, you hang out there for weeks and weeks and weeks. Typically, there's a bigger plot line and the characters want to follow it. I know plot lines probably gonna get me in trouble. But basically, you know, they go into the cave and they slay the goblins. But why were the goblins there? Oh, hold on. There's a note here from a hobgoblin ruler to tell the goblins how to get into the city to steal stuff. Well, how does the hobgoblin ruler know that? Why are they doing this? What's going on with them? So then the player characters go that way. And then next thing you know, they don't ever want, you know, they reach this point where now it's like it's a breaking point. In fact, this just happened in my campaign where they had some gold. They could have went back to town to get some spells and also so somebody could level up so they get the experience points. But they chose to not do that so that they could try to stop a ritual from an evil priest, evil high priest at that. They were like, well, no, if we go back to town, we'll have to stay there for a week or so to get to level up, right? Because I don't do training, but I do, I don't, you know, you don't just walk into town, oh, safe place, leave, and you level up. You know, you got to like come in and sit and, you know, it, we keep it kind of abstract, but that's basically how I do that. So they had to make that choice. And this is where this really comes in. So now I've hit like a really odd spot because they don't have a lot of gold, like I said, and they just actually stole the spellbook from a high-level magic user. So they're trying to decide if they want to, like, give the spellbook back and try to make kind of a loose friend out of this guy, or if they want to keep it so they can have those spells. Because, again, it's tremendously valuable, and this magic user comes from AD&D. <laughs> that is to say, I'm running an AD&D module, so the spells in their book are not spells that exist, Right. They're, they're like, well, I think Magic Missile is actually one of them. There is no Magic Missile spell in my game because I don't play with Greyhawk. So if they get this spell book and they capture it, which they have, it's it's locked. They can't get into it right now. So that's the reason why they haven't done it yet. They can theoretically copy this Magic Missile spell and be one of the few people in the world that have it. Again, valuable. Spells are valuable. Books are valuable. They can be destroyed. This is why you make extra copies and stuff like that. And again, your price for making extra copies is not that much when you think about it. It seems to say you make an entire copy of your book, or can anyways, like say it's a second level book for 4,000 gold pieces. You just got to buy a book and spend the time, right? So it's not like uh, it's that hard to do, but you got to have time. And if you don't give the players time to do it, then it becomes difficult. So that's kind of where I'm at here. We'll see if they decide to say, you know what, we're just going to have to take two months off. They did this once before so they can get some of the spells they have now. Back then they had a bunch of money, though. Now, the other thing is, what does the fighter do during this time period? I've been bouncing around in my head, and I think this is how we got to uh, the latest edition of Dungeons & Dragons, to be honest with you. Every time you do something in the game where you look at things, you constantly think, yeah, but what about these other characters? And I know people are going to say, well, you know, run multiple characters and but most people that I've encountered these days, unless you come into it as with the idea at the beginning where everybody's just going to have a stable of characters, don't want to go, okay, well, my six-level fighter will go off and explore with some other random group while the magic users in the party study their spells. 
Like it just doesn't really work that way. Maybe if you had a big enough group, it would. So what ends up happening is where's the fighter dude? And I thought spells and spending money, I mean, yes, castles, right? And I guess armor on some level. But again, in the beginning, armor is expensive and you're struggling to get that plate mail armor and the best sword you can get. But once you've got that, like it's not expensive. You can buy a million suits of plate mail armor with the gold they're getting. Well, maybe not a million. And I don't want to have it so you can buy magic items. So I had thought about the idea of allowing fighters to improve themselves during this downtime. And a couple of ideas. I'm just going to throw them out there and see what people think. Well, first of all, the first one won't work 100% the way I'm doing the system now because it is they gain extra hit points. So if hit points represent luck, skill, the fate of the gods, and some wounds, then in theory, you should be able to gain more hit points. You do at each level, right? What if a fighter can gain for every week or two weeks or whatever a hit point? If they spend the gold, now what's the gold being spent on? Exercise equipment, I don't know, steroids. I mean, (laughs) prayers over them by clerics. Any number of things, right? Learning special training techniques, learning how to use their armor better. These things, oh, coach, right? These are all things that you could kind of, however you want to make it work in your world. We can make anything work in the world. In fact, it's funny, I used to play with this guy. I was into 5e, back to when I was playing 5e more. And they could justify anything. They could take the most random class combinations, the most random uh, species combinations and be like, well, here's the reason why I'm this. And it would kind of make sense, you know, I mean, on some level, like it's like one of those things. So again, you can make it make sense. Now, my problem is I give all player characters maximum hit points, basically. Like you get one, you get six hit points per die. You don't roll for hit points in my game. I could change that and make it so they roll. Or I could make them go over six, you know. I think, I don't want to give them extra hit dice because I think that's too powerful. So I wouldn't do that. I could give them the bonus thing that gives them the death saves, but I feel like, again, that becomes more fiddly. So I'm wondering if instead of giving maximum hit dice, we go with the fact that everybody gets three hit points per die. Because again, I don't want to have them roll. I like the idea of it just being a fixed number. It's just easier, but maybe rolling is better. Let me know. And fighters can increase that by training. And for... You know, the first point above three, you know, they get uh, whatever. For the first die, actually, I'm thinking how to do it, right? I'm, I'm literally making this up as I do this. What if they actually, it's not an actual hit die, but it's hit points, right? So if they get, it costs them to increase their dice, 2,000, I'll say right off the bat, because it's the first level. If they're first level, 4,000. If they're second level, et cetera, et cetera to get one hit point per die. It'll be per die, right? So when you're first level until second, you, you I know what you're saying. You're like, well, they'll just spend the money and get it all right, but they can't because it only costs, it only takes 2,000 experience points to get to second level, which means in order to get their first hit point, they're already going to be second level. It's going to cost them 4,000 experience points to get one, one hit point. And I don't know if it'd be per die or if it'd be one hit point, probably per die, I think is fair. And by the time they had enough gold to get the second one, they'd be third level. Because again, everything doubles, right, in D&D. This cost is literally the fighter progression, right? So it makes it so that they can't actually get to that six points per die until they're at six level. And then they can't do any more at that point. But at that point, they could then be saving for a castle. Yeah, actually, I'm convincing myself that I like this one. The other idea I had was to give them a bonus to hit. Same kind of idea. They could add one to their attack throw 
and it would cost, again, the amount that the gold is there, depending on what level they're at. So at first level, when they get that 2,000 experience points, they go to second level, they could add plus one to get to the plus two that it would cost them 4,000. But by then, you know, again, they have 4,000 more experience points. So they're basically a, a level up. So again, it would take them time to get to eventually that plus six, which is ridiculous. It means they more or less auto hit. So I don't know that that's even feasible. So I'm kind of now convincing myself that's not a good idea. Um, although it could be a plus one added to, oh yeah, that would make sense. It'd be plus one only for one die, right? So you could get six and at six level, you throw in six dice, you'd be six dice with a plus one to each of them. At seventh level, you know, if you could do it again, you could, so eventually if you spent the, the gold, you could actually get to the point where you're rolling plus one on all your dice, which makes it powerful, but not out of the, out of the norms. That might actually work. Let me know what you think about that. And again, theoretically, you could keep doing it. So if you didn't want to like build a castle, you could just keep throwing your money at that and you could eventually be, we'll be rolling 10 dice with each one plus one. I mean, that'd be pretty awesome too. So that's just some ideas for fighters trying to stay with the same idea of spending the money, not because I think it's realistic or that they need to, but just so that fighters have something to do and I'd have it take the same amount of time. So that there's really a reason. I mean, fortunately for me, my players who are playing fighters, although now only one player is playing a fighter, they're fine with just going, I just hang out in town for two months and, you know, eat elaborate meals and do whatever, you know, they don't care that their characters are sitting around for two months. They're like, no, my character would run around. So yeah, I, you know, they don't really worry too much about that. But I'm just thinking as a game mechanic, that might be kind of cool. Okay. Wow. Okay. I talked longer about that than I thought I was going to. I am going to get into these calls, but since I'm talking stuff anyways, check the show notes. There's going to be a link to a Google Drive. That is going to link you to Unchained Heroes. It is Friday when I'm recording this. This is going to go live on Sunday. I may or may not get everything I wanted to get done, done, but the game is going to be functional. It has all the progression in it. It has, you know, some how to play stuff. It's going to have, I have to put the combat charts in it, but those are pretty easy. I'll definitely get those in there. What's not in there currently is animal stats and the seer class, which is the magic user class and their spells. Those are not in there yet because uh, I'm revamping those, but you can play with just a hero and some followers and, you know, kind of start messing around with the system if you want based on what's there. I would love to get some feedback on this. So please do download it. If I can, I'm going to leave it in the Google Drive for now. What I eventually want to do is put it on drive through as like a free or pay what you want or whatever. That way you can just sit up there so it's more, more accessible. Is that really more accessible? Let me know if that's better to have it somewhere up there. Maybe more people will see it. Although there's probably a gazillion things on drive through So only people that I send there are going to see it anyway. So <laughs> it doesn't actually matter. In any case, let's just go up there and download it. Let me know what you think. So let's get to the calls. And uh, yeah, we'll wrap it up. All right. These first two calls are from Michael Chicago Wiz at the Dungeon Masters Handbook Podcast. Hey, Daniel, this is Michael again with Dungeon Masters Handbook. Um, just heard your last comment on your OD&D combat uh, session. Welcome to 15 millimeter, uh, uh, the world of 15 millimeter. It's wonderful. Um, I've been doing 15 millimeter for a while with my mass combat actually, uh, and uh, have recently started moving into using it for um, my role-playing games. The biggest reason isn't necessarily because of the cost, but rather that 15 millimeter actually fits really well with the one inch equals 10 feet rule. 
if you use that kind of scale in your combat, then the 15 millimeter figures work out really well because the idea that you can get three soldiers abreast in a 10 foot area, 15 millimeters, do that the easiest. I suppose you could go with six millimeter, but that's getting a little bit too small for me. I really don't like using six millimeter unless we're talking about something like Battletech or, um, you know, maybe even something, you know, like uh, spaceship combat. I would maybe go six millimeter less. Anyway, uh, welcome to the rabbit holes. They're lots of fun and we have cheaper cookies. We'll talk to you later. Thanks, Michael. Yes, I've been loving 15 millimeter. It's so interesting. So three abreast is kind of cool. I'm using little hex bases for them. I think they're three quarter inch, so I don't know if they'd fit there. Maybe they're not. I have to look at them. Uh, I'll have to kind of see if they could all fit, but you could kind of like stack them. Hmm. I'll have to look at it. Very cool. I'd be curious. I'll probably just send you a message to see what size bases you're using, but you know, I would totally use them in person. That was kind of my idea when I started buying more of them. But then I realized that all my players bought uh, custom minis from Heroes Forge, beautiful minis. And so they all have their characters all done up and everything. And I would hate to be like, don't use those anymore. Use these guys. <laughs> that being said, maybe I'll use the 15 millimeters anyways for the bad guys and just be like, don't worry about the scale because this is just what I have. Because I now have a big old pile of them. So thanks so much for uh, now making me think about six millimeter. <laughs> Actually, what's funny is six millimeter was one of the first things I really looked at. I was watching a YouTube channel called The Joy of War Gaming, and they do a lot of different... Uh, combat stuff they were doing, they were doing a chainmail series and they were using two millimeter. And it just, I think I went to one site to see what, where, how to get two millimeter. And they also had six there. And I was like, Ooh, six looks really interesting, but I decided against it. And I went with two millimeter for that. But you know, now I'm thinking, well, six could be interesting. You know what I'm thinking? And this is maybe you've done this before. I'm like, you know what? So one of the reasons, I don't know if I said this last time, one of the reasons why I got these 15 millimeters I'm painting right now is because they are cowboys. And I, I'm doing a Boot Hill scenario called The Good, The Bad, and The Orcish. And I had found dwarf cowboy miniatures, but they were like $15 a piece. And, you know, honestly, I'm not going to buy $20, $15 miniatures for a convention game. And I, I for the orcs, I was like, and they also have orc cowboys. And again, they're expensive. And I'm like, what am I going to do here? So what I ended up doing was I bought seven two-scale, you know, like the little plastic, like army guys. And I got those for, they're actually Civil War, but that's what I could find. And I got those guys and I just painted their faces green. You know, they're orcs, right? And the, I mean, they're orc cowboys, so why, why not? And then I'm like, yeah, I could do the same thing for the dwarves and then just whatever. I'm like, let me look around. And then I thought, oh, 15 millimeter. So when you put the 15 millimeter guy next to the 7.2 scale guy, which I think is like 25 millimeter, I may have said this already, they end up looking like a dwarf. So I'm loving it. So it's very, very exciting. And I, I don't know if I mentioned this, but there's this whole thing going around where people are fighting dragons. And I ordered some uh, armored knights on horses to fight a dragon in OD&D. So we'll see probably after Gen Con. So don't look forward to that, but don't look forward to it too soon. Hi, Daniel. It's Michael, Chicago Wiz from Dungeon Master's Handbook Podcast. Just finished listening to your episode on Chainmail and OD&D. Must be the week to do that. Um, I, I actually think you released this a couple of weeks ago, but I'm just now getting to my episode and getting around to listening to yours. I'm going to be releasing an episode two on uh, Chainmail and how I use it in OD&D. And, uh, interesting to see the uh, similarities and differences. One of the things I really encourage you, as well as other folks, to check out on uh 
Delta's uh, OD&D hotspot is their set of rules called Book of War. They used to have a free kind of open version of it that was very stripped down and just gave the basic rules, um, as well as the version, the full version. They have a link to somewhere on their blog. Uh, it's only like $5. But it is very interesting because it is statistically similar to uh, D&D Combat itself, the kind of the, you know, who can hit when and versus... Um, uh, what types of armor class uh, Daniel Collins Delta is, is very detail oriented. He's a statistician. He teaches it. So, uh, you know, this is what you would expect from someone like that. But I think it'll inform folks a little bit also on maybe different ways to think about chainmail and on different ways of taking what are mass combat rules and incorporating them into their uh, fantasy role-playing games. I mean, honestly, that's why I care about Chainmail in the first place, not because I necessarily enjoy or you know, think that the system is so great, but because it was written for mass combat, I want to have the option of, you know, having the players involved in big battles or, you know, in one-on-one battles and being able to seamlessly move back and forth. And that, that's really been my, one of my goals since day one of really investigating Chainmail. And um, anyway, I think uh, the Book of War rules, aside from being a fun little uh, skirmish uh, style or larger style mass uh, combat rules, uh, it might help to inform some investigation on that. Anyway, awesome to talk to you. Take care and game on. Thanks so much again for those calls, Michael. Yes, I have Delta's Book of War, and I also highly recommend it. I think that it's a really cool supplement. I got it maybe six, seven months ago. Somebody recommended it to me. I can't remember if I got the PDF and then printed it using Lulu or something, or if there was a print-on-demand available when I went and got it. I'll have to look because I do have a physical copy of it. Actually, that must be what I did because I don't think I have a PDF. I looked on my computer really quickly, so I just have a physical copy. I'm not sure where it is anymore. But suffice to say, it was pretty cool. I liked looking through it and seeing what other people were doing. I did not really use anything from it, really, because I already had my system so far developed that anything that's like similar to what they were already doing was already there, right? And anything that's different, I didn't feel like really changing what I've got. So it is very cool, though, and and I love using Chainmail because... It puts you in this great situation where you're using a system that is for mass combat. And because I use all three types of combat, you have the punch in, you've got that kind of mid shot, and you have this like super high fantasy with the, you know, fantastic combat. So it really is very cool. And I'm glad I stumbled upon it. It was, um, I think Jason Vay's Conan, I forget what the supplements call, was the very first thing I ever saw with that. And boy, am I glad I saw it because it really opened my eyes and changed the way that I look at D&D and combat and the fighter, really. Hey, Daniel, Jason here. Really enjoyed your Control and Probabilities YouTube video. I would recommend folks also check out Goblin Henchman's blog. He does all kinds of great things with dice and mechanics, and he really enjoys the math part of it, and there's lots of great articles up there. If you don't have a link to that, I can share that with you. Also, I really love the idea of rolling for the reaction and then doing the charisma to modify it instead of doing charisma to modify the initial role. I really like that. Now, of course, if your charisma has or if your character has a reaction bonus, you can apply that to the initial role. Okay. I, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. Just like if they have a, a high 
charisma, or, you know, if you're playing with, with the book that shall not be named in AD&D, if they have a high comeliness, you know, yes, that should modify that initial role. But I do like the idea of doing the role and then giving the characters a chance to adjust it as opposed to, you, you know. Anyway, you know what I'm saying. I, I, I think it's a great idea. I think it was a great video. And I'm glad you're putting out this great content. Thank you. That was Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Uh, he's referring to a YouTube video that I just released. Uh, I guess la- it was last week. It, yeah, that should still be the most current one when this comes out. Uh, talking about doing different dice mechanics. I, I had, of course, been looking through the Dungeon Master's Guide again. And uh, yes, goblins, henchmen, amazing stuff there. Super cool. Of course, most well-known or most talked about by me anyways for the hex flower. Lots of great stuff using probabilities and math and stuff. So definitely check out goblins, henchmen. I'll put a link down below. And so far as the reaction, I, you know, it's super interesting because when I was playing 5th edition, I had decided, made this character, and I decided that she wasn't, she had, she was a warlock and she had a high charisma and I decided that she wasn't going to be like the, the front person of the group. She wasn't going to be the, the talker or whatever. So I just said, you know, she is very charismatic because she's so beautiful. And people, you know, pay attention to beautiful people, both men and women. Uh, pay attention to both men and women who are beautiful. You know, people like to look at and talk to attractive people. So that was kind of her stick. You know, she was just very good looking and she more or less used that. Now, of course, in a game that has a different attribute for the looks, like using uh, the old uh, Unearthed Arcana, as Jason mentions, that kind of works. You know, you can definitely do that because you could imagine somebody who's not very attractive, but that is a great leader, you know, and they would be, you know, charismatic. So you could have two different stats. I don't think that the game of D&D in general, I mean, obviously tables vary, but I don't think the game of D&D in general is about good looking people you know, and seduction and things like that, for, you know, as a core element of the game. So I'm not sure having a a stat on how good looking you are is really important. So I can see why that went away. <laughs> I mean, maybe it was controversial. I don't know. Actually, I did have the, the, the Unearthed Arcana book and we definitely played it. You know, we were too young to know any better. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I love the Cavaliers. Oh man, we had such fun with that. But anyways, I, uh, thanks for calling in Jason. And we do have one more call from Jason. Hey, Daniel, Jason here. Just wanted to chime in that I agree with you 100%. It does matter if you're being recorded. If you know you're being recorded, you do. Most people, there are going to be outliers, of course, but most people are going to act differently. They In the back of their head, they know they're being recorded. They're going to be more mindful of that. And, you know, maybe for some people, that's a good thing, actually. <laughs> but, yeah, I much prefer to run sessions that are non-recorded into play in sessions that are not recorded because of that. I, I find it's much more natural to the flow, but that's just my experience, limited experience. I haven't been recorded a whole bunch of times, but I have been some. Thanks, Jason and Michael for calling in. Anybody else who would like to share their thoughts, please feel free to do so. There's a link in the show notes. Also down there, you're going to find a link to my Discord. You could send me a link on Discord if you don't want to use the Spotify link. Also, I'm on the Audio Dungeon Discord, Clericware Ringmail, Grizzly Peaks, Radio, and probably other ones, but if you see if you find me on Discord, you can send me a message that way just as easily. Also, check out my Patreon down there if you'd like to support the channel. I'll talk to you soon.